Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. We have a jam-packed show today. In honor of Black History Month, we have five exceptional Black journalists in the studio right now to discuss the opportunities and challenges of their chosen profession. Then, ahead of a community forum at UNF tonight, we look at what the healthcare industry and the criminal justice system can do and is doing to tackle the opioid epidemic. And later, we're thrilled to welcome Southern soul rocker J.J. Gray of Mofro ahead of his release tomorrow of his new album, A Lusty. But first, we're looking at the job of being a Black journalist in modern newsrooms here in Jacksonville and how that role has changed and continued to change. I'm joined now by a group of local journalists dedicated to being a powerful voice for communities who are underrepresented or voiceless. Um, Start with Sylvia Perry, editor of the Jacksonville Free Press, a Black weekly newspaper that has published for decades now, four decades. Welcome, Sylvia. Good morning. Will Brown, specializing in covers uh, issues of race, poverty, and inequality for Florida Today. Hey, Will. Good morning. Nice to have you again. Mia Tomer, junior at the University of North Florida, major in journalism. Hey, Mia. Hi, good morning. And we are waiting on a couple of our guests who have hit a little bit of I-95 traffic. Anthony Austin from First Coast News and Marilyn Parker from News for Jacks will be joining us in just a moment. Um, I want to start with you, Sylvia. Uh, you are the editor of a historically black newspaper. Um, how does that focus shape your coverage and the stories that you tell? Do you tell different stories or do you tell stories differently? Ah, well, a little bit of both. We had the dual challenge of not only presenting a valid perspective, but also making that perspective of importance to our readers and why that subject is subject matter is important to them. So it has that dual slant of, of why I should know this and why you want to know. How important is it to have a black paper in town for a very you know significant population here of you know black residents and black journalists. Absolutely of importance. I mean, as it goes back to the beginning of black journalism, back into the early 1800s, we served the voice of the voiceless. And if we don't print it, if it's not shared, uh, oftentimes that story or that slant or that way, that perspective is not shared with the mainstream. Anthony Austin, welcome. Thanks for arriving despite traffic. (laughs) I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Glad to have you. Uh, You've been in this business now for almost 20 years. Uh, 15, actually. 15, all right. It feels like 20, though, but close (laughs) enough. The Asian dog years. (laughs) Right. Uh, You're from Texas originally, but you've been in Jacksonville for about 10 years. Uh, Eight years in January. Eight years, okay. My math is terrible. That's okay. It's close enough. Does being a black journalist give you any special sense of obligation or purpose? You know, and it does, because I'll tell you, coming from Texas, my first job, I uh, worked for a CBS affiliate in my hometown, actually, of Tyler, Texas, and I was the only black journalist in the entire newsroom. And I felt like I had a sense of responsibility because I, I, I know people meant well, but I, I still remember this one story. My boss came up to me and she was asking me to do an interview with someone. And she was like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this person in your community. And I said, huh. I was like, that's an interesting phrase to use, your community. So right then, I, I knew she meant well, but she was already kind of separating me from everyone else. And when it comes to covering news, especially where I was in East Texas, I think it was so important to represent my community in a positive manner because no one really in that newsroom kind of understood. And once again, I don't think it was intentional, but they just didn't have that background to understand why it was so important to cover our black community. Marilyn Parker, I want to bring you into the conversation. Thank you also for arriving despite I-95 today. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, you're a broadcast journalist at News for Jacks. Um, the numbers across the industry really show black journalists are underrepresented in newsrooms, uh, just about six and a half percent of reporting journalists. Was this something that you thought about before or, or when you were deciding to become a reporter? Absolutely. Um, graduating from North Carolina A&T, uh, it's a big HBCU. And one of the things that I was taught was to look at the newsroom you're going into first. So I always paid attention to demographics. Um, one, because it's simply said, but representation does matter. Um, people who can advocate for me and people who can step aside and say, you know what, maybe I don't understand this, so maybe I can ask someone else and they can guide me. And I think that transcends into the way that we present the news and the way the community receives us. So it is a priority to me. Um, I look at who's in charge um, and I look at 
their thought process. When I have that conversation, I'm always asking, you know, how important and why is diversity and having different faces in your newsroom important to you? And I take that answer and I have follow-up questions. Uh, I hit them right back with it because, again, how we look on TV should be a reflection of our community. And I think that is where we get into the conversation of, you know, trusting our news and having someone you can relate to. So it is a big priority for me. Will Brown, you cover all kinds of stories. Um, You've worked for the Business Journal. You worked for the St. Augustine Record. You've covered sports. You've covered all kinds of news. But for Jacksonville today, your beat is specifically focused on race and related issues. How do you approach that task? And what appeals to you about that specialized beat? I love the beat. It's because there's so many different stories and people here in Jacksonville. Um, For me, the biggest thing is being present. Everything from, you know, the melanin market, when they have markets, it's, I might not write a story, but it just might be, go walk up and down a Philip Randolph and get some ice cream while I'm at it. Um, It's, for example, tomorrow night, Reigns is playing Jackson and boys basketball for a trip to the state semifinals. I can't in good conscience say, hey, tell me these really hard, potentially negative things about this community if I don't show up for the joyful things as well. And so it's all about being present and by being present and just willing to have conversations with people, sometimes they're far off the record. Um, sometimes they're so far off the record. It's like, yeah, I know we, we didn't talk, um, (laughs) but being, but being present allows me to do that. And I I just love the opportunity to be able to, to, you know, sometimes wander around the East side or go up to Northwest Jacks or go hang out on the, on the West side. And when I say hang out, I mean, go like, listen to people and let them tell, tell me what's going on instead of assuming what's going on. Mia Tomer, you are working into the field of journalism um, as a third-year student at UNF, and your ambition is to become a journalist. Um, what have you been told about, you know, things that you might encounter in this field that could be problematic? What do you, do you have working journalists of color that you are close to that advise you about, you know, concerns perhaps embarking on this this line of work? Right. Um, I did have a professor. Um, she was African American and she had history with um, reporting. She was able to, oh, I'm sorry. She was like a reporter at some point in her career and she did talk to us about challenges she faced like while being black. And she did mention something that Marilyn like was bringing up that you want to look at like what the newsroom looks like. You want to, before you go into the job, you want to see like the diversity of it. And so she always warned us about that. She warned like us black girls about like our hair. Like she said she had a whole like, issue with that and so that's like something I've like had in the back of my mind for like okay that might be something that comes up um one thing I thought about myself that would be like I'm a little fearful of is being like put in a box like I appreciate like all of like what y'all do like the rest of you for like you know putting out the black stories as like that's important and that's what we should be doing but I want to have the creativity to do whatever story I want to do at that point, like, because sometimes I'll get, like, put in a box in class. It's like, here are, like, the list of stories that y'all can choose from, and I'll get put with uh, the more black-pushed story because I'm black and, like, nobody else is. And it's like, okay, I get it, but, like, I kind of want to write what I want to write about, <laughs> you know? So that's, like, the only thing that I've, like, faced personally right now, but, like, it could happen in the future again, you know? Anthony, I want to ask you about that. I mean, I worked with you at First Coast News. I always thought of it as a diverse newsroom, but that's coming from a white person's perspective. I don't know if it reads that way to black journalists and producers and the people that work in that newsroom um, as diverse or diverse enough. Um, But also, um, to Mia's point, being put into a box, how how does that play out? And you're you're an anchor. Yeah, and and she makes a great point there. And I will say, Anne... um, Coming here to Jacksonville, First Coast News is probably the most diverse newsroom I've worked I've worked in, especially now. I, I think we've done a better job of making sure that our newsroom is diverse. I can say I've been in, I worked in North Carolina, I worked in Texas, that was not the case. Um, so I, I understand what she's saying about being put in a box, because I felt very early on in my journalism career, when you're the only person, the only black person in the newsroom, you're pushed towards those stories. If something happens in the black community... Send Anthony. He's going to relate to them. He he understands this. 
And I don't necessarily feel like she's saying, I, I want to cover the stories I want to cover. Now, I think I probably do have a better perspective sometimes on covering a story in a black community, but I want everyone in the newsroom to go out in that community so they can experience that as well, so they can relate to the people in the black community so you're not just coming over there. Because so many times we hear from people in different neighborhoods, you only come over here when there's crime, when there's something bad. Why are you not sharing the positive stories? And we, they need to see the journalists in our newsroom don't necessarily look like me, come into the community to share those positive stories. We've got a call. Uh, Eric um, in Arlington, good morning. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Uh, yeah, two comments real quick. I think people these days would rather be entertained than informed. And uh, as a result, we've got like millions of people every day getting their information from questionable sources like Joe Rogan. Um, and so I wonder if you could comment on that. And then the second thing is, I understand about diversity. Diversity is important. But I think that what gets lost in a diversity conversation is diversity of income is, I think, where the focus needs to be and not diversity of skin color. There's a lot of people out here that are not being represented. Um, and people like me, I live in the 32254. You know, I live in a neighborhood that is productive, which is impoverished. Yeah. Well, and so I don't just want black uh, you know, people, folks that are black report on the news. I want it to be about people that are poor. Right. Thanks, you know, Eric. I want to steer that to Will, because not only are you covering issues of race, but you cover issues of poverty and inequality generally. And Eric brings up a fantastic point of it's not about, you know, you know, Northwest Jacksonville has really pushed and the east side as well is really working at become a mixed income neighborhood, because previously when those uh, predominantly black neighborhoods were exclusively black it they were neighborhoods of people of all incomes and as the wealthier folks moved out or the people with more means moved out uh the they became pockets of poverty and so one of the things i do is speak to developers and not just developers speak with speak with people whose housing situation isn't the most secure or people whose food situation is not the most secure uh or when i pick up my son who goes to a school in northwest jacksonville it's taking the scenic route to kind of lay eyes on what's going on. And it's Eric's point of that. It's, it's important to be able to be present and it's important to be able to, to get that trust. So people will open up to you because sometimes folks will say, Oh, I have all these issues, but yeah, don't use my name because sometimes they'll feel embarrassed. They'll feel that they'll be put out there in a way that um, almost like the Anton Dobson meme. You know, um, of years and years ago, uh, someone I think in Alabama was speaking to a TV reporter and he he forcefully said a few things. And then it became this meme that's been on the Internet for a decade. Mm. So so I think being present and developing that trust is a way to be able to share the stories of people of diverse uh, when I diverse income backgrounds. Sylvia, I want to ask you, because your paper has as part of its mission, you know, trying to tell the good stories of of the people that you cover. And, you know, to Anthony's point, there's often a, a sense in some communities, if they're under-resourced, that people are only reporting on them when there's problems. Um, how does the work that you do try to bridge that perception? Ah, well, we remain trying to, with the focus of education and empowerment and then engagement as well. So we choose to focus mainly on the positive sides of the news. The old misnomer, if it bleeds, it leads. You can read about the crime who has done what, who shot Johnny, et cetera, anywhere. That's going to lead on the front pages of mainstream media, the local, uh, everywhere. So it's our job to root out those other stories that you will not find. And that's where you'll find that in the free press. And that's what we choose to focus on. Marilyn, um, you've been nodding uh, forcefully about some of these comments that you've been hearing. <laughs> I'm a um, nodder. <laughs> yeah. Um, particularly the issue of being present. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, I mean, the job of a daily journalist, for people who don't know, is an incredible grind. It is nonstop. It is every day, all day, everything you can do just to try to get the news out. Absolutely. So how do you champion representation, being present, when you're being pulled in a bunch of different directions? I think I champion it by dipping my finger in as many different things as I can. One of the stories that has really sat with me on my heart and on my mind um, because of the different parameters and all of the different elements of the story that could be brought to light is this whole case uh, with Virgilio Aguilar-Mendez. Um, that is another situation where there is a minority and 
no, we, we don't look the same, but we are both considered minorities. And there is a civil lawsuit now that has been filed and it is addressing a language barrier in relations with people and who speak different languages and the police. And we should be clear, just for people who don't know the backstory, um, an officer basically stopped or detained um, Mr. Aguilar. He was not uh, doing anything at the time, um, but there was a scuffle that ensued with an officer in St. John's County, and that officer ended up having a fatal heart attack. Yes. Tragic. Heartbreaking. And it was something that shook the community, obviously, because there was no answers immediately. We did not know what happened. You know, we didn't get the autopsy until several months later. But when we got the body camera video, I think that changed things. I think that opened up a whole other layer of questions because people would reach out to me and they would say, this guy is not even speaking Spanish. We learned later that it's a dialect of Spanish. Spanish It's ma'am. And we were like, well, what is that? And so it just brought on a slew of different things. And I think that being able to talk, talk to our growing Hispanic and Latino community here in Jacksonville about that case was another layer of representation. Mm-hmm. I'm doing stories now where I'm so glad that our newsroom, we have, I think, three people who now speak Spanish, you know, in our newsroom. And I've been doing stories where the goal has been, okay, can we do a Spanish version of this story and post it on newsforjacks.com? Can we put it on News for Jacks Plus? And, you know tell that story so that they don't have to only see it in one language. I think it's about inclusion. And I'm grateful that now I'm finding that we have managers who are willing to do this and take that jump. That is important to the diversity in in management. It's not just, you know, the faces. We have to have diverse management who are willing to hear us and want to implement these ideas. So I am grateful for News for Jackson that in that aspect. Well, and, and to Marilyn's point, you know, we just did a story at Jacksonville today. 17% of people in Duval County speak a, a language beside English. Yes. And that number has grown year over year. And so we as journalists, whether we're black, white, brown, tall, short, small, um, rich or poor, we'd be doing a disservice if we weren't telling those stories. Yes. So that's the importance of diversity. Um, and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn. Like, you know, Jacksonville Today published a story about a, a boys soccer team that has children who speak 10 different languages. All On a 20-person team, 10 different languages. And until last night, they were undefeated. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a show of you can do things together mm-hmm. if you take the time to go listen, learn, and tell those stories. We've got a call. Stanley on the north side. Good morning, Stanley. Yes, good morning to everybody. Yes, um, my main concern here, because I used to be a community uh, blogger for the Florida Time Union. I mean, Jacksonville Journey. Sorry about that. Uh, but uh, my main concern here, when it comes to the news, is pick and choose. It's selective. And when it comes to, we don't just want the African-American community uh, news. We want diverse news, but it needs to be fair and balanced. In Jacksonville, it's not fair and balanced. And I've been in Jacksonville, I'm a native, over 60-some years. And I'm a, 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 a community activist in this community. And I'm in City Hall five days a week. Mm. But I have never really seen any news people really in City Hall addressing the community activists. Thank you. Thank you, Stanley. Appreciate it. Uh, we're talking with five local black journalists about covering communities of color amid growing industry pressures, threats, demands for racial justice. Uh, if you have questions or experiences that you want to share, you can join the conversation at 904-549-2937. We know some folks are having phone issues this morning out in the community, so you can also email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org, or you can reach out on Instagram, Facebook, or X. Anthony, I want to um, ask you, being an anchor in a newsroom, you are a reporter, you turn stories all the time, but there's kind of an elevated role to being an anchor. You get to be a little bit of a, a spokesperson, a champion of issues. Um, have you ever had, you know, difficult moments where you've had to be the conscious, conscious conscience of the newsroom or, um, you know, steer coverage that you thought perhaps wasn't hitting the mark in terms of being just or appropriate uh, when covering covering communities of color? That's a very good question, Ann, and I'm kind of thinking to myself right now, where do I begin <laughs> all of that? Because I, I feel like as a b- black journalist, uh, you know, we are taught to not be biased, 
to represent, you know, everyone. But sometimes when things hit home, when you see someone who looks like you, who could be your your grandmother, your grandfather, your uncle, your brother, your sister, going through this tough situation in a newscast, it hits home to you. But, you know, you're you're not supposed to have any emotions, especially when we were going through the entire you know, social justice movement. And when we see cases of police brutality and you you hear the facts surrounding the case and it just, you think to yourself, what if that was me in, my, in that situation? How do we respond to this? How do we go and talk to those grieving families? What are the right questions that we ask? So I'm always thinking about that. Even when I'm on the anchor desk, when we're in editorial meetings, what if that was me? What if that was my family member? And, and I try to remind all of the journalists in our newsroom, put yourself in their shoes. What if that was happening to you? What would you want the community to know? How would you want a reporter to speak to you? What would you want them to share about the situation? There have been, as you uh, you know, note, there's been a lot of really difficult stories that have been in the news over the last several years, um, and you know, before that as well. But um, and in this community. Will, um, I mean, we we all covered the Dollar General Massacre, um, right. which was a direct racist attack um, in the heart of Jacksonville. Um, and it's an incredibly difficult story to hear. But to tell it as a black journalist is it's is a unique challenge, Will. It, it was. And, you know, but the, the when I say the beauty of black journalism is the funeral for Angela Carr was tough. And I sat right next to Marilyn and she was helping me not cry when total praise was coming on. Mm -hmm. I, but I about lost it. And she just looked at me. I was like, okay, get it together. Get it together. You can do this. And just that quick moment, it was probably no more than five seconds, but that quick moment I was like, okay, was allowed me to focus. And I'm sure it helped her as well because I mean, a 52 year old grandmother goes and has a ride share mm -hmm. and they can't have a casket at the memorial service. I mean, that's, it's still tough. And I've said this to people privately, but my, son, my son's school is a 10-minute walk from there. <laughs> it's, um, so realizing all of that, it not only, inf it not only, it informed my reporting. And so when I saw the families, and everyone here touched on that story, mm -hmm. When I saw the families, I would say, I'm really sorry. I'm not here to, I'm not here to talk to you. I'm just here to say, I'm sorry. If you'd like to talk to me, there's always a way for you to find me, but I'm not going to say anything to you right now other than I'm sorry. And just saying that I've seen the, the, I've seen some members of, um, Mr. Gallion's family over, over the months. And it's just like this quick head nod of, I appreciate you just giving us a moment to exhale. And I'm not saying any, I'm not saying a white journalist or a Latino journalist or an Asian journalist could not have done that. I'm not saying that at all. They could have. What I'm saying is knowing full well that all of us are, are very melanated people, um, <laughs> you know, that could have been us. And thus, I think that informed how we approached the story to make sure that we we told it in a way that was honest with context with clarity but humane as well marilyn i want to ask you about that because um you know being a support network for each other in the field you're not necessarily being competitors at that point you are you know offering some solidarity and some assistance absolutely and that was so I, i'm glad you remember that i didn't know if you remember that or not but uh, i did yeah and also you know i think back to the conversation that you and i had when dollar general reopened you and i were right next to each other again and so seeing other journalists of color out in the field it does give me comfort i remember just last week um when they did the procession for kennedy sanders uh the the soldier uh killed over in jordan and there was a young journalist there who worked at my old station. And I said, hey, young sister, I see you. If you need me, call me. I'm here. You know, and she was so grateful to have that. And so I think it's just a matter of camaraderie. I am competitive, but I'm mm -hmm. never a person. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> I can be competitive. It's just my nature. But I'm always willing to help 
any journalist who I see. Um, but in those moments where it's so raw and it's so we're 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 walking into the Dollar General where there, this was a targeted attack. You know, yes, any any journalist would have asked those questions. Well, you're absolutely right. But this was targeted. This was meant for black people. And I, I never wanted that to be misinterpreted by anyone when we did that story. And so the the big conversation that you and I were having was, you know, it's just unfortunate because there are so many people in that community that need that store, that that's their only source of grocery. You know, we talk with people who came up just to Dollar General to say, we don't want it here. But I'm like, no, I just spoke with this man who's on a walker and he does not have transportation. And now they have groceries in there. And it's such it's such a stain, but it can be something much bigger on the other side. And so having those two instances in the story meant so much to me. And I think that was the way we were able to capture the feeling of the community in that area, because so many people who don't even know there are people in Jacksonville who have never even been on that street, Mm -hmm. who have never gone down by Edward Waters, who don't even know what it looks like. Um, And they don't care. There's a lot of people who just don't care. And I think it's our job. um, my, My main three things are passion, authenticity, and integrity. And if we can accomplish that as journalists in everything we do, then I think I can tap on you just a little bit and make you care just a little bit. You know, it may not impact you or affect you directly, but I want to try and make you care. That's my goal. And at the educational level at UNF or, you know, among your peers, do you think that there is enough being done to to teach upcoming journalists about the importance, the importance of diversity and inclusion in the newsroom um, and in coverage? Other than the professor that I spoke about previously, she was the only one that kind of really touched on it. Um, yeah, she was African-American. And then all the other professors are like not. And so it's just it's just really about like you know, journalism, nothing about, like, we don't really get into, like, what could happen, like, race-wise and stuff like that. Um, I do have a professor now who does, like, acknowledge it. She likes to, like, talk to the colored students, and she likes to make sure that we are, like, heard, and, like, she'll suggest, like, hey, if you want to do something, like, about your community, like, go ahead and, like, do that. Like, I want you to, like, have that voice. So she's really good with that. Um Otherwise, there's, like, not much of, like, that being done. Would you like to see more? Absolutely. It's, like, kind of like a, it's really quiet about that, honestly, at the school. So you don't really hear much about it. It's not really brought up. Yeah. Um, Anthony, just briefly, I want to ask you about, you know, changes that you're seeing in the industry. If you think that um, even as stories perhaps get difficult or more difficult, um, if there is enough of a resource for kind of the emotional side of these difficult stories for people, um, you know, particularly when you're dealing, you know, with breaking news and you're mm-hmm. delivering just, you know, very difficult subjects. That's a good question. Um, I, I think we are getting better as an industry about making sure that there's mental health resources available for journalists um, when we go through these tough situations. And I kind of want to go back to the Dollar General situation that we were talking about because our newsroom had a conversation about the shooter's manifesto. If we were going to share what was inside of it, because it was filled with so much hate and just, I don't even know how to describe it. And I remember our news director, um, who is a woman of color emailed us and said, if you read this and you need some counseling, if you need someone to talk to, we're going to make that available for you. But As a newsroom, we decided not to share what was in there. But there was also a part of me as a black journalist. I wanted people to know that this is 2024 and you still have people who believe like this, who still talk like this, who still use the N-word in all kinds of different language and that believe that black people or minorities in general should not exist, that we should not be here. And so I kind of went back and forth with myself that day thinking to myself, why are we not sharing this? We need to let people know about this. Let them know. But, you know, my coworkers are saying not to share it. And just kind of going back to that mental health side of it, you'll lose your mind sometimes, you know, in this business, just, you know, just, just to be honest. But I, I think we are getting better as journalists, as a newsroom in this business to just talk about it, to talk about these things so we can 
have some kind of peace of mind at the end of the day. Well, Anthony Austin, Sylvia Perry, Marilyn Parker, Will Brown, Mia Tomer, thank you all so much for this discussion. It was great talking to all of you. And we'll be right back with how the medical and criminal justice fields are fighting the opioid epidemic and whether it's working. And we're back. Nearly one in two people in the southern United States knows at least one person who has died of a drug overdose. That's according to a Rand Corporation study that was published yesterday. Nearly half a billion Americans have died from opioid overdoses since 1999, according to the CDC. And those numbers just continue to grow and are expected to continue to grow. I'm joined now by two substance abuse experts ahead of a community discussion tonight at the University of North Florida, Dr. Katherine Hooper director of UNF's Behavioral Neuroscience Program. Hey, Dr. Hooper. Hi, good morning. And Dr. Mitch Miller, professor of criminology and criminal justice at the University of North Florida. Hi, Dr. Miller. Hello, nice to be with you. Sorry, I'm just going to adjust the mic there a little bit for you. All right, uh, for our listeners, if you know somebody who has struggled with or died from opioid dependency, what do you think is needed to combat the epidemic? You can call us at 904-549-2937 or email firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Dr. Miller, the new report that I mentioned from the RAND Corporation tries to quantify the impact of the opioid, the the epidemic on communities, including children of overdose victims. Um, And that impact is really impossible to overstate. How did we get here? Well, a lot of people think that uh, it's a function of what's going on at the border. And, uh, I work in partnership with sheriffs and police chiefs, uh, jail administrators across the country, and they certainly are attesting to a before-after effect. Uh, but other people say that there is a direct relationship to the legalization of marijuana throughout the country as well, and that there's been uh, the old gateway argument. But uh, irrespective of how we've gotten here, I think it's important to point out that the problem is probably much more severe than we're realizing. Uh, One of the things that I focus on with my partners at UNF and elsewhere throughout the region is uh, jail-based screening for substance abuse and mental health disorders because so many people that suffer from opiates and other substances, substance misuse, go through the justice system, and that is... uh, perhaps one of the only chance that society will have to diagnose and direct these people to treatment. So the numbers are pretty, you know, amazing when it comes to the intersection of opioid addiction and crimes. I believe it's estimated that one in five prison inmates are there for a drug related offense. um, And that 65% of the U S prison population has some sort of active substance use disorder. Um, What changes do you think need to happen from a criminal justice perspective, Dr. Miller, about, you know, handling this? Well, I think that the problem is being addressed in a broad scale manner already uh, through uh, several of the U.S. Department of Justice uh, agencies, such as uh, especially the U.S. Bureau of Justice Assistance. There are multiple uh, federal funding programs that uh, provide resources for the jail-based disorder screening to connect people to treatment, to provide training to law enforcement officers uh, on a range of issues from the administration of Narcan to better understanding the signs of misuse and connecting people to treatment. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, these programs uh, provide vast amounts of funding for rural, suburban, and uh, inner city areas where the problems tend to be concentrated. So uh, I think that the resources are there. It's just a matter of forming the partnerships and uh, really doing the, uh, the hard legwork that takes to uh, want to make a difference. Catherine Hooper, your um, perspective is medically, you know, looking at this epidemic. Um, and we hear about Narcan as a lifesaver. It's a drug that can reverse, you know, immediately the uh, overdose effects of an opioid. Um, why isn't it saving more lives? Well, you have to get you have to get to somebody quickly. Um, the problem with opiates is that they suppress uh, breathing, um, which of course is something nobody wants, but it's a side effect. So if you don't get there fast enough with Narcan, then uh, you can't stop somebody from uh, dying from stopping breathing. Another problem is that when you give the Narcan, uh, if you just give it to somebody, they suddenly get better, and then you release them, then they could still have enough opiates in their system that they just they overdose again. Like they don't have to take any more. It just keeps affecting the same brain receptors once the Narcan isn't effective anymore. So you may have to give multiple doses. But somebody who's giving somebody Narcan should um, make sure that that person gets to the hospital hospital right away because they could still be in an overdose. I had not heard that. Yeah. So at tonight's forum, what is it that you are going to be wanting to talk about? What questions do you anticipate the community has from a medical perspective about the epidemic? Um, I think they probably want to know how it got so bad so fast. Um, and one thing I would say about that is that opiates have always been a problem. I mean, for thousands of years, people have been abusing opiate drugs. But more recently, now we have these synthetic opiates, which are a lot more effective. They're a lot more potent. Um, they cross the blood-brain barrier a lot better than the, you know, the original opiate is morphine. Um, and then since then, organic chemists have been able to sort of tweak the molecule once they figured out what, you know, what morphine was. It comes from the opium poppy. They were able to kind of chemically tweak it, make it cross the blood-brain barrier better, make it a more effective painkiller. It's a very, very effective painkiller. I mean, it's the best thing that we have for killing pain. Um, but now that it can get to the brain a lot faster, it causes that sort of rush that people feel, which is very addictive. Um, that changes the brain. It causes them to crave it. And so I think with these newer drugs that we have, um, they have just become um, unintentionally when, you know, we, they've tried to make, the drug companies are trying to make them less addictive, but instead they've actually become more addictive. And so that, I think, is how it's happened so fast. And then with fentanyl just everywhere these days, uh, that's how it happened. So I think people are wondering, you know, you know, how did this, how do we get to this point? And then what can we do to make it stop? We've got a call. Charles, good morning, Charles. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning. Um, so... I uh, I lost my son to a, a fentanyl overdose. Um, he had an addictive. He was born with an addictive personality, which I'm sure y'all might want to mention that people are actually born. They're born with an addictive personalities, and they only got to use a drug one time, and then they're hooked. And unfortunately, um, the medical industry and the pharmaceutical industry in 2012 decided they would put oxycotton in every kitchen cabinet in America. And all the kids and schools and everything, they got the Oxycontin out of their cabinets and had little parties. And if you had an addictive personality, you only had to take it one time and you were you were hooked on it. And um, unfortunately, fentanyl came around and <laughs> that's what my son, he, he had a, my son was extremely intelligent. He, he was sought after by his corporation he worked for. They really loved him. He did great. They gave him bonuses and wrote him up in magazine articles because he was so good at what he did. But he would go have a little party every once in a while. I mean, he would just go back and uh, shoot up some, theoretically, some heroin. Well, it was laced with fentanyl, and it took his life, which happens a lot. And so, and then the Narcan, Narcan, I have it in my pocket. I carry it with me. 24 hours a day, I always have it. So I, I, I guess things, something that needs to happen is you people need to be educated. And I don't know how you feel about 
you, your children being educated in grammar school or parents being grammar school or high, the junior high or the senior high. But at some point, you have to have an understanding. You have to have an education as to what can happen if you just decide to have a little party with your buddies and have take a pill and it happens to be laced with fentanyl and you're you're gone. It's over with. So it's a very difficult situation. And I think education is probably and having NAR can for everybody to have it and then just get smarter. Thank you. Charles, our condolences about your son. Thanks so much for sharing your story. Um, the availability of Narcan surely is, um, you know, increasing. Um, it's more available. I believe it's, you know, you don't need a prescription. You can get it and and carry it on you. But are there any um, programs in place right now, Dr. Miller, to educate young people about the dangers of um, addiction or opioids and fentanyl specifically? Increasingly so. This is, has been a controversy, especially on college campuses over the last few years. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners uh, are aware and, and I've heard of the term Narcan parties. A lot of the uh, a lot of the clients that we work with at, after they get out of the justice system or while they're still on probation, they will continue to use and, and the same concept that someone would be a designated driver, three, four, five people will be the users and they will uh, engage in opiate abuse to the point of essentially what would be a fatal overdose, but then the designated Narcan administrator person is there. And uh, that's just really scary that, you know, people are sort of daring death in this fashion. But I, I, one, one other thing I would like to mention that uh, uh, is a follow-up uh, to a point that uh, the caller just made is that the, the increase that we're seeing in overdoses and especially fatal overdoses attributable to fentanyl are not due to fentanyl-seeking people. The fentanyl is it's, it's an adulteration effect where it's in other more traditionally recreationally abused drugs and also pharmaceutically diverted drugs, especially Xanax and, and Valium. we got a call, uh, Susan from St. Augustine. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to mention I was in the drugstore and I saw Narcan on the counter and I thought, oh, I should probably pick some of this up just in case I ever need it. And it was $50. I think that's just a little bit too expensive for the regular human being. Thank you, Susan. Uh, good call. Just very briefly, Dr. Hooper, um, any sense that that might get less expensive? I don't know, but it is something that needs to happen. Um, I have some Narcan. I got it free from um, uh, a music festival uh, where they were giving it out for free. And that would be great oh. if, if we could make that a lot less expensive. Well, Dr. Hooper, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for being here ahead of the panel at UNF. Um, we look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And stick with us in just a minute. West Jacksonville native and swamp soul rocker J.J. Gray joins us to preview his new album. Florida Roundup, turning up the heat. This is Tom Hudson. Florida sweated through the hottest month ever last summer. It was the second hottest year going back more than a century. Lawmakers are considering a bill that would ban local governments from requiring companies to protect workers from extreme heat. As another summer approaches, how will you beat the heat? And what roles should state and local governments play when temperatures rise? Email us radio at thefloridaroundup.org. Then join us Fridays noon until one. On the next Fresh Air, New York Times journalist Alan Foyer joins us to break down the mounting legal challenges of former President Donald Trump. As Trump seeks to gain the Republican presidential nomination, he faces 91 felony charges across four states, and 
several lawsuits, many with dates in court that run up against the presidential election. Join us tomorrow morning at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? At 81 years old, President Biden says his mind is sharp. But how does age affect our brains and the ability to be president? I'm Deborah Becker. A look at how our brains change over time. That's on the next On Point. Today at 11 on WJCT News 89.9. Homelessness is often depicted as adults facing hardship on the streets of our biggest cities, but it takes many forms, including families dealing with housing instability and struggling to get their kids to finish school. It, it just seems like every time we get our foot in the door and we just get up, something pulls the rug out and we're right back to it. Youth Homelessness in America, next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Such a long way. She's got to get back home any way she can. Wow. Well, we're back. We're joined now by Florida based Swamp Rock and Roots musician JJ Gray. Hey, JJ. Hey, how you doing? That sounds terrific. Uh, JJ is here ahead of his uh, release tomorrow of his latest collection of tunes. He's kicking off uh, the release with a uh, appearance at Tone Vendor Records in St. Augustine tomorrow evening. Um, thanks for being here. Ah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so Florida is your ancestral home. Um, a lot of your early work had an environmental focus. I'm thinking especially of like Florida and La Calusa. Um, they're almost elegies for a place that is, you know, here and fading. Is that still kind of a, a priority, a focus of yours? Um. Yes. Uh, I wrote the songs in retrospect, I guess I wrote the songs to remind myself of what's important. And it's basically my grandfather telling me a bunch of stories when I was a kid. Um, and just connect cause where he grew up, he grew up near old lusty, not far, it's just South of old lusty, about five miles out that way. And so many of those elements in the song, uh, excuse me, in the, uh, early albums are in the record itself. Uh, the new records as well as the old records. The whole idea is that I just tried to uh, figure out a way to remind myself of what's important. And it just kind of turns into mantras because like anybody, I just kind of get lost in the, what I would think of as the phony world of my mind. <laughs> and uh, which leads to like the craziness of today, social media, this, that, the other thing, all the other stuff. I don't really do any of that, but um it's just an extension of the insanity that I tried to escape by writing songs. I guess that's me laying on my own couch and analyzing myself. So I didn't write the songs to tell anybody else what to do uh, or how they should see the world. I, I think they wrote themselves through me to remind me of what I need to focus on. Um, I used to work at Folio, the original Folio Weekly, and I remember an interview you did um, many, many years ago where you said to you, music sounds like a place. Mm. Um how, how do you describe the sound of Florida or this part of Florida? Mm, that's a good question. I, I I don't know, but um, when I hear it, it then it, it it comes to me. So a lot of times I'm working at music uh, at home or or messing around on on a dobro or whatever or a piano or a, a guitar, and it, it the it ultimately whatever music I come up with the lyrics come later because that music reminds me of something that happened or a moment or a place or any of those things and so um when you hear it you know it you know it's like uh reggae sounds like the Caribbean and uh classical some classical music sounds like some place you know in in Europe somewheres but um uh and and I often wondered if it would be that way if if people came here from another planet and say, nope, and if they would connect those same dots that we all kind of connect. But um, the music just sounds like it, and I, I don't know how to make it sound that way. It just does. Mm -hmm. So your newest album is Lusty. Um, it's out tomorrow on Alligator Records. What do you want people to know about this record? Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, 
it's uh, here again. I I don't really do it to uh, affect people. Uh, I just do it because I feel like I have to, like a, like a salmon swimming upstream, you know. And if somebody stopped and asked, "Why are you Why are you swimming upstream?" and the salmon just says, "I don't know. I have to go that way." So I don't. Uh, I just hope if if it does anything, I hope it invokes in me an honest moment with myself and connect to that honest moment, a real moment. And maybe it'll do that for other people as well. You're about to kick off a world tour. Uh, any place in particular that you're excited about heading to? Um, uh, everywhere is every, everywhere. Like everything is everything. So I can't think of one, but um, if I sat down and thought about it, I, I have, do have my favorite venues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm looking forward to playing in St. Augustine here. I'll be honest with you. It's one of my favorite places to play in the world, whole world. And having the, uh, been op- given the opportunity to, to sort of tour around the world. I love playing here. Um, but, and uh, you do the, it's a, an annual, the Black Blackwater Soul Review that you do at, at the Amphitheater. It's two days of music, right? That, that's right. Yeah. Um, and this one is coming up in May. It's got a whole lineup. I mean, you headline it both days, but there's also Lucero, uh, the Almond Vets Band. That's right. G Love and Special Sauce. Yep. Uh, good friends. Yeah. Everybody. It's all. It's all like. Uh, and Anders Osborne. So yes. like a real good mix of sounds and and diversity of you know m- music styles. One hundred percent. And uh, it's been great partnering with uh, with Gabe and them at the Amphitheater to do it. And I'm just lucky because uh, I, I get to you know chill out and get to see a lot of my friends play for a, for a change because so often we're all on sort of diverge from each other on different tours. Well, we're going to close out here with the album's title track, Alusty. Anything you want to tell us before we hear it? Uh, it's just about running from a forest fire. Two stories that uh, my grandfather told me one uh, when he grew up and then one that I was, I got unfortunately called in one once. So. Uh, all right. Well, this one, this song's going to get you all going. So enjoy, JJ. Thanks for being here and safe travels. Thank you. And that's our program. If you missed anything, catch the rebroadcast at 8 o'clock or find today's show at wjct.org or on your favorite podcast platform. Join us again Friday as we look at the week's biggest headlines with our First Coast Week in Review. I'm Ann Schindler. You've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Hear it roar, hear it roar all the way round, old lusty like a flaming Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.